Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode of America Adapts. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Natasha Desjarnet, who works on public health issues and climate change at the American Public Health Association. We cover a lot of ground. Public health will be a massive player in the adaptation universe, and it's a sector only growing in influence. Natasha and I cover ground on the climate impacts on public health, creating more awareness and adaptation lessons and tactics from the tobacco wars of the 1990s that we can apply in climate outreach, our response to the Ebola crisis and what we can learn from those public health responses. We also talk about environmental justice and equity and much, much more. Natasha is great. You're going to be pumped that someone like her is working on this critical area of adaptation. Okay, some brief housekeeping. First off, America Daps is celebrating two years as a podcast. I can't believe it's been that long since my first guest, Dr. Nick Fisichelli, was on the show. And now 70 episodes later, here we are. I have an upcoming episode with Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund sharing some thoughts about this anniversary. I've mentioned before, but you can now listen to the podcast on Alexa. In my show notes, there is a video that shows you how to do this. Also, you can now listen to the podcast on Google's new podcast app, Google Podcasts. And as always, you can listen on Spotify. So upcoming episodes I've mentioned before, I am in the middle of working on a three-part flood-themed series with World Wildlife Fund. And I'm also getting Olympic snowboarding medalist Ariel Gold on the show to talk about an organization she's helping protect our winters, which is obviously talking about how climate change is impacting the winter games. I'm also talking with Josh Dorfman of the Lazy Environmentalist fame, who's now the CEO of The Collider, a nonprofit group helping startup companies get into the climate game. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Think about it. On this two-year anniversary, you want to go in and donate. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Give a one-time donation. Give a recurring donation. Also, if you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast where I go on location or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. That's how I keep the podcast going. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's join Dr. Desjarnet. Hey, welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Dr. Natasha Desjarnet. Natasha is the policy analyst with environmental health at AFA, the American Public Health Association. Hi, Natasha. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. I'm glad to be here. I am thrilled to have you on. You and I have been chatting for months trying to set this up, and here we are. We're finally recording the podcast, so <laughs> we did it. We finally found the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited. I'm a fan of your show, and I'm glad to be here. Great. And so this actually, I, I think, I look back, I mean, it's been talked to, you know, very in small bits, but like my first episode dedicated to public health. And I'm, as I'm sure you're thinking, it's like, well, why haven't you done more? And so here we are doing this first one. And it's going to be, I think, just an increasingly important part of the whole adaptation discussion. So I, I'm thrilled to actually be able to say this is part of my library. So you're going to just make people feel really knowledgeable about climate change and public health at the end of this. So the, the stakes are high. Okay. Awesome. No pressure. Huh? All right. So first off, just some Basic information about AFA. What is it that how you pronounce the acronym AFA? 
We actually say APHA. You know, they do this at ASLA too, this uh, landscape park. And I always wanted to say ASLA, and they just always said, <laughs> no, that's not it. Okay, APHA, what do you guys do there? We are the Premier Public Health Association, and we're the largest worldwide association of public health professionals. Um, we're a membership association, and we have 25,000 regular members in public health agencies or academia across the U.S. And then we have another 25,000 members that are part of our affiliate organizations. So each state has an affiliate, as well as New York City and Puerto Rico, for example. And bringing together our affiliate membership plus our regular membership, APHA has 50,000 members worldwide. Okay, and so... I'm not that familiar with you, but you, you really are sort of that national peak body group. I'm thinking of like the AARP, these sort of really big national groups in regarding public health. You're like sort of like the key association. Is that kind of how you would view yourself? That's certainly how, how we like to view ourselves. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and certainly, um, I believe our members would also attest to this. So we're, we're predominantly a membership organization, but we also have in-house expertise that move issues forward as well. We have a government relations department, which is self-explanatory. I am a part of APHA's Center for Public Health Policy. And in the Policy Center, we champion specific areas of health. One of our biggest portfolios in the Policy Center is environmental health. And so I am on the environmental health team, but the Policy Center also takes on other health topics such as the Affordable Care Act and access to health services. But environmental health is, is among our largest portfolio. In the Policy Center, we serve as subject matter experts for our whole staff. So when communication, our communications department is working on something, needs some expertise on a given topic, they reach out to members of the Policy Center. Same for government relations and so forth and so on down the line. So that's basically APHA in a nutshell and, and then our staff components in a nutshell as well. Okay, you know, it's occurred to me, I'm not going to keep saying this acronym. I'm going to say the association when I referred to it. I just I can't say sure. it fast enough. All right. What about you? How long have you worked there? So I've been, uh, now this is interesting. I've been an employee at APHA for almost three years to the date. I just passed my three-year anniversary. But I also was a member of APHA for five years before I became um, a staff member at APHA. I'm excited that I've been able to see APHA from the membership aspect, fall in love with APHA from that aspect, and then come and bring my service to APHA full circle as a staff member and really delve deeply into environmental health topics that I'm really passionate about. At APHA, on our environmental health team, I lead our natural environment portfolio. So that includes air and water exposures, as well as climate change. I came here with expertise in air quality and health, and I have really been immersed in climate change and health, which is not a major leap from air quality and health, certainly, but certainly new big exposures, and I have just enjoyed it thoroughly. All right. So what I always like to ask, so your doctorate, what, what was your doctorate in? It's in public health, concentrating in environmental health sciences. And my dissertation research was on how air pollution is related to heart disease risk. Oh, my goodness. That's important. <laughs> that's very relevant to a lot of people. So absolutely. So many of us, we get our master's or we get our PhDs and topics that end up right on the shelf and not relevant to anything that is very relevant to a lot of people. 
I'd like to think so. Okay, so we're going to jump right into this. Is I'm not going to waste any time putting you right on the spot. And so you shared with me a bunch of resources, and one of them, and I and I dug into it. Is this you were the main author of this paper from last year, the American Public Health Association's 2017 Year of Climate Change and Health Time for Action. You're familiar with that document, right? Yes. Okay. The first line in that article is. Climate change is today's greatest public health threat. I don't get a sense that that's the case from when I look out at society. I am in your camp. I am all on board with that statement, but I'm just, it's a bold statement. And so mm-hmm. how do you justify that? And how do you kind of get the public to sort of recognize, and we're going to dig more into that later, but that that's a pretty bold statement. It is. And APHA does firmly believe that climate change is the greatest threat to human health worldwide. Uh, A part of it is because climate change and the impacts of climate change are interrelated and they're related to so many things. But it all connects to our health on many levels. And so for our most vulnerable populations, it is a risk multiplier, you know, uh, where these vulnerable groups like people of color, people with disabilities, impoverished communities, et cetera, where they already have the burden of additional health disparities, climate change will exacerbate these or climate change will make these worse. That's one issue with it. So it climate change is interrelated to so many different things, like if you consider extreme weather events. And it not only impacts our physical health by way of increasing our risk of asthma or asthma exacerbations, cardiovascular disease, um, and other chronic diseases, climate change also has a heavy toll on our mental health. So climate change just affects health across the board, no matter what aspect of climate change we're looking at, whether it's sea level rise, whether it's flooding, whether it's extreme weather, vector-borne disease, extreme heat, the hallmark of climate change. All these factors are all connected to our health. It certainly has impacts on our economy. It has impacts on um, our jobs, our livelihood. And ultimately, it has a big impact on our health. So we believe that one of the most important arguments that we can insert in the movement to change climate change is to insert the health argument, because health is something that is important to all of us. And whether, you know, no matter what political party you're from, uh, you know, p- climate conversations can have a partisan divide. No matter who you are, no matter what party you're from, it affects our health. And those those are facts and science that really can't be denied. Oh, they can be, but I'm with you. <laughs> True. <laughs> they can be. All right. Okay. Okay. So just you, you gave a, a bit of an overview there, but just for folks who really don't understand the, you know, the link between public health and climate change, just you mentioned some of the impacts like wildfire and sea level rise, but like sort of the public health threats. I mean, so what are the, really the main ones? And I know you have some great resources on, on your website that I'll include in my show notes, but if you could just sort of give people a really brief overview of like the, I think there's four or five sort of main ones. Absolutely. I'd love to touch on some of the main ones that that have been explored in great deal. And if I go too long, feel free to cut me off, because sadly, you can go on and on forever about the ways that climate change affects health. But for extreme heat, it's pretty clear cut. We have increased risk of heat related illness. So heat strokes and heat exhaustion and mortality from those conditions. 
Extreme heat also can influence folks that have asthma or heart disease and make them more susceptible. And then extreme heat also plays a role in mental illness. There are certain folks with mental conditions that their medications aren't as effective in situations of extreme heat. For air quality, uh, and that's also a big one in climate change and health, air quality can affect our um, asthma and heart disease. You know, we've got this increase in carbon dioxide trapping heat and pollutants below. So this is decreasing our air quality, making it difficult for folks to breathe and um, thereby affecting both asthma and heart disease or diseases of the lung and diseases of the heart. In addition with air quality, because we've got longer, hotter, warm seasons due to climate change. We've got increased allergy seasons, increased intensity, I should say, of these allergy seasons. So we've got more pollen in the air. So we have people's allergies uh, going haywire, for lack of a better word. And then that also has impacts on folks that have asthma as well. For We have increases in vector-borne disease, and you may have heard recently that CDC released a report that vector-borne disease has been on the rise in the last few years. And what that is is diseases that are carried by bugs, insects, or even rodents. So the way climate change plays a role in that, we've got increased warmth, and we have increased warmth in areas that did not used to have an environment that was habitable to certain vectors. Um, or insects, but now this has increased the geographic range of these, geographic range and habitat of these disease-carrying organisms. So Zika has, you know, been in the news a lot lately, and that can have a climate component, as well as Lyme disease and West Nile disease. So then we also have extreme precipitation. And it's important to note that this is extremes in both directions. So we have increased flooding, and then we also have increased drought. And both of these can affect our health. With increased flooding, after flood events, this increases our risk of gastrointestinal illness. If there is a stormwater overflow or a sewer surge, this increases our risk of gastrointestinal illness after those storms. Of course, there's risk of injury and death. You know, people hear things like don't drive through flooded areas when there's a storm. So increased risk of injuries then as well. There's often mold that comes after the storm um, in flooded homes. There's that increased risk of mold, which can have impacts on folks with asthma. And then this also leaves people displaced. And that can have a great impact on our health and mental health as well. So that's the flooding half. And then there's the drought half. Extreme drought can increase our risk of wildfires, which we've been seeing in California and other spots throughout the nation over the last several uh, months and years. And this increase in wildfires, they're increasing both in severity and also in the duration of these wildfires. And people that are exposed to them are exposed to poor air quality. So that, you know, links us back to the um, hazards that have to do with air quality and asthma and heart disease risk. And then there's also extreme weather. We're seeing more severe and more frequent outbreaks of extreme weather. I, I hear this way too frequently. These hundred year floods are happening every year or hundred year storms, 500 year storms are happening 
in way more close a time frame than 100 or 500 years. And so these, very similar to flooding, increase our risk of injury, have mental health impacts for those who survive the storm, and, and even some for those who are able to relocate during the storm. And then the mold that's left behind. Those are the touchstones I wanted to touch on in terms of um, how climate change uh, relates to our health. But we could really talk about this all day. <laughs> wow. So that, that's just a lot of heavy stuff there. I, you know, I'm just imagining people are like, oh, here comes Natasha at happy hour and they just make a run for it. You just <laughs> bludgeon them with like the end of the world as we know it. You know, one of the things that, I do on this podcast occasionally because, you know, we're just talking about adaptation in general. It's like trying to come up with the perfect 30-second adaptation elevator speech, and it's actually quite difficult. And, you know, when you've got so much, like such a spectrum of the things that it covers, it, it, it's difficult to sort of really explain <laughs> this is what it all means. And, I mean, that you, you covered it all, but uh, that's serious stuff. It is. It is. And you can really um, break up the dinner party really quickly <laughs> with, with these conversations. It can get pretty grim pretty quickly. But what I've also noticed is that the conversation can be infectious. I think um, the health talk of it can actually loop some people that may not have been in climate conversations before can loop those folks in because you can make co connections between them and extreme heat and you know, when they've gone outside and been overheated on an extreme heat day, things for that example. And I, I had a friend who I will not oust on your program that sent me a, a message this morning out of the blue, not prompted at all, and um, said, climate change is real, I know it, and it's happening now. So these conversations, they do have to happen. They do, you know, we have to start our ministries, um, whatever they may be, we have to start that at home. Not to the point that we're running folks away, but exposing people, understanding, uh, you know, as, as our conversation kind of went before, understanding uh, the arguments of deniers and having a better dialogue that can reach both sides. I understand this. I started a podcast. I'm with you. <laughs> I get it. And, you know, I don't know if you caught, if you did that on purpose, what you just described, talking with other people, you said infectious. I mean, you did that on purpose, right? Using that word. <laughs> you did that on purpose. All right. Okay. I want to jump into some other topics here. That that was great. People have a broad context of public health and climate change. And again, I think this issue of climate justice is a very interesting one. And I, I'm seeing more people sort of start thinking about that. And it's a tough one. I'm sure that you, you guys recognize that, that issues of inequality, we're not solving it in other realms, let alone climate change. And so you've got your work cut out for you. And one of the things that I think, I think this isn't one of those adaptation action plans, but I, I just want to read this to you. Let me see where it, in regards to these populations of climate justice you, in this document says, these populations may need increased protection of their rights as they are less climate resilient and climate justice is deserved by all. And so I'm very curious what would it look like meaning to increase the protection of their rights? Are those sort of like just existing rights that we all take for granted or is there something new that would have to be done in the context of climate change? I mean, is that too obscure in the report to, for you to answer? Well, yes, I'll give something of an analogy. And there there are many health departments, state health departments, local groups that are, are working to address these issues. 
But I'll, I'll start with an analogy. So we talk about health equity a lot in, in the field of public health, but there are a lot of people within and beyond the field that, that aren't really steeped into what it means. And so I want to define it in terms of a picture I've seen over and over that talks about health equity. It's not equality. So it's not giving everybody equal access to, in this case, climate protection. That certainly must happen, but we have to go beyond that. So in this picture, there are three people that are trying to look over a fence and watch a ball game. One person is way too short. One person is almost too short. And one is tall enough to see over the fence on their own. So we give them equal blocks. The person that's tall enough is way too tall, <laughs> still tall enough to see over the fence. Maybe the middle height person can now see over the fence. The short person with that equal size block is still too short to see over the fence. So we can't give people equal blocks, equal solutions to be able to overcome the issues that we're facing on climate change. Some people are going to need much more of a block. Some people are going to need a little less. And some people just need tools and action to move things forward. They, they don't need quite a block to actually be able to be resilient. So there are certain communities, um, for example, if you consider the redlining practices that has that have limited where people of color may be able to live, Chicago has been notorious for this and other places all across the U.S., These the areas tend to be less climate resilient. So how can we make those areas more resilient? How can we work with planners to make sure that those specific areas don't bear an additional burden? Then we have people with disabilities that are really left further endangered when it comes to extreme weather. So how can we make sure that we're looking out for our folks with disability in terms of extreme weather events? And, and then if you consider... Uh, our elderly family members, our elderly friends, our elderly folks in the community, they tend to be more socially isolated. And so we'll have, um, let's say, an extreme heat alert that'll go out and it'll go to everyone's cell phone. But my grandma, for example, does not use a cell phone. So how do we make sure that she gets the message? How can we ensure that our elderly folks are not isolated, that they're getting the messages and they're able to get to safety, for example? So that's what, what we mean in terms of climate justice. Um, not a concrete definition, but a description um, that kind of can give light to addressing certain needs to bring everybody up to a level playing field. Okay, great. That was helpful. And, and I'm going to be pivoting in this conversation a bit, so I'm going to keep you on your toes. And when I think of public health, it's obviously very important to everyone, but to communicate the the threat of climate change, it's a bit more difficult. And I and I think like in the last couple of years, when we had the the Ebola threat that in Africa, people are dying from it, and there's this gigantic global sort of outcry of like, okay, we hope we don't get it. And then even the U.S. sort of geared up. And and I'm just curious, like a, a group like the Association, when something like that happens, there's just this incredible sense of urgency. I think the White House created like an office to deal specifically with it. And ultimately, there wasn't really any sort of, I think there was a two or three cases in the U.S. and they were able to treat those people. But how do you kind of bring in and I, that they're different things. It's sort of more of a, a time issue, too. But how do you bring that sense of urgency into an issue like health impacts of climate change? Great question. I, I think if we can solve this question, then okay. <laughs> we can solve this whole thing. But 
One thing is, is unfortunately taking advantage of those opportunities right when an event occurs. A lot of it is all about communication. And so if when an event occurs, we can communicate with people in those times when their senses are heightened, their understanding is there and they're engaged in the topic, helping make that connection. So a lot of folks did that last year when we unfortunately had a a record-breaking amount of extreme heavy storms that were, you know, namely uh, three hurricanes that made landfall in the U.S. last fall, Maria, Hurricane Harvey, and what's the third one? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, oh, I'm putting myself on the Lester, spot. So sorry. I don't know. But we had those three major hurricanes that made landfall on the U.S. last year. So that is a prime opportunity to say this is happening, this is real, um, and and that this is also affecting our health. But there's something that we can do about it. So certainly helping people make that connection. And I can't tell you how best to communicate to people, but certainly one part of it is timeliness. And then another part is using the right words and effective communication. And there's a lot of research going on around that as we speak. I'm no expert on it, and I certainly want to learn from it. I I was just going to think, you know, the more, I mean, as you were talking and using those examples, it occurred to me, I mean, there's so many different ways to communicate public health and what's effective, what's not effective. Think about like cancer and the notion of Mm -hmm. like eat healthy, exercise. Some of that penetrates and that's not, for some, it's it's an immediate issue. But again, it's one, maybe it's sort of a longer term threat that people have to kind of think about. You have campaigns to educate people on that. And I think some of them are quite effective when you're dealing with that. But the biggest one of all that I think was quite successful is the, the health issues associated with smoking. Yes. And, and are there things to learn? And, and that took decades. But at the same time, are there things to really learn when it comes to communicating climate change? You guys talk about that at uh, APHA. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's been coming up in conversation much more, how how effective the campaign against big tobacco was, um, how they did utilize health, 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 and how they were able to impact change. Although, like you said, that did take quite some time, but certainly public health thinkers are looking to some of our key movements to see what we can learn from those movements that will be able to affect change when it comes to climate change and health. And I hope you guys do. If it, it's coming back to me even more, is that we think a lot of these things are just sort of voluntary. You know, people will do the right thing over the long term. But the whole big tobacco, if you remember, and I think I'm a bit older than you, but in the 90s, the Congress just took these major hearings and really exposed a lot of the tobacco heads to what they were doing, which was quickly followed by all those class action lawsuits that the states filed. And then literally hundreds of billions of dollars went toward health issues, but then also marketing. That (laughs) was huge. And it would be great if we had something similar in climate change. I don't know if it's the energy companies, and I'm not saying that you're proposing that now, but again, that took that was successful in a lot a big way because of sort of the regulatory approach to that. Yeah, it's huge and it and it requires so many sectors to be involved in a huge marketing campaign essentially and it and, and it even involves TV like having this conversation in our mass media, having this conversation beyond environmental type folks talking to each other. We're great at talking to each other, but we've got to enlist others in this conversation 
And uh, another movement that people have been looking to as an example is the movement um, towards gay marriage um, and equalizing uh, rights to gay couples and how that mainstream media really played a big impact on shifting some of the narratives and shifting some of the viewpoints on that. So not only do public health folks, scientists, academians um, need to continue talking and brainstorming, but we've got to engage the meteorological community. I, I heard on the Today Show the other day, Al Roker talked about climate change during his weather segment. I was I was so excited and inspired, and we got to have more of that. We um, we definitely have to have more of that. All right, and I just want to go back to your, your gay marriage thing really quickly. Is that I, I agree the media and it's just they they were sort of setting the stage by you know hopefully portraying this in a positive way, but at the end of the day, it was still the Supreme Court making sort of True. a regulatory decision that this is now legal. And True. you do need to sort of set in motion and help society get closer to that position. But there are just still big, major, pivotal moments. And with climate change, maybe I'm forgetting something, but we're still not there where we had that sort of regulatory thing that just kicked it all into high gear. Absolutely. A sad reminder that there, that there there is more that has to be done. But certainly, if there's public outcry, that does help drive things. Well, you guys are helping set the stage, so that's a good thing. Okay, so I've got more questions for you. We're just we're, we're jumping right into these. I, I want to skip around a little bit because it's relevant to what one of the things that you just said in that you have a fact sheet, and this is one of the resources that you shared with me, Health Approaches to Climate Change. How do healthcare providers and public health professionals, which is you, approach climate change differently? And there, there was a whole like flyer that you had, and I thought that was really great that you created such a thing at your office. And, and I just wonder, is, I bet there's a probably a pretty big disconnect with healthcare providers and then health professionals like you in regards to communicating the issue, making it an urgent one, and for some obvious reasons, but I'm just curious your thoughts on, is there more integration there than what my, my gut tells me there's not that much? Well, so there are definitely some health provider groups that are very engaged on climate change and health. And there's certainly much more opportunity as well. But some of the major medical associations are very connected on climate change and health. What's really important in public health, and I'm really glad that you saw that fact sheet, what we want people to know, first and foremost, is that both responses are needed. There's a public health response that's needed, and then there's also a medical response that's needed. Neither are, it's not a competition. One is not more needed than the other. Both responses are needed so that we can protect folks from the health impacts of climate change. What's really important about the medical field in particular is that they're often the first line responders when it comes to climate change and health. When someone is injured in an extreme weather event or when someone has a heat stroke or heat exhaustion and has to go to the emergency room, the hospitals are the first line of defense. And I can even, or not the hospitals, I should say, um, medical professionals are the first line of defense. And I can, I can even speak from experience. I was, we had an air quality alert for several days here. I personally have asthma. And I, you know, found myself at urgent treatment talking with the doctors like, I don't know what's happening to me. And she actually made the connection 
Well, we're under an air quality alert. Now, you think that I know this, I live and breathe this every day, but when it happens to your health, it's something different. But health providers have um, a great role of being that first line of defense. And when, when patients visit them, it's really great if they can make those connections. So what APHA did um, in 2016, we had a webinar series with Eco America um, on four different aspects of climate change and health, and we geared it towards medical professionals. And after that, we created a series of fact sheets that were written at an eighth grade reading level and with the intention that doctors would hand them out to their patients to help them be able to make those connections and arm themselves against the health impacts of climate change. One in particular was on allergies and asthma. Another was on children's health because they, they're among the vulnerable populations that's more sensitive to the health impacts of climate change. Another was on mental health. And then we also had one that looked at transportation and healthy community design as a solution on climate change. Okay, so in those, the, I guess, are flyers or whatever the resources that you're handing out, does it literally say climate change on the, the documents that are shared? Uh, on those, it does. Right. <laughs> it, it depends who we work with. That's a great question. And, and, and so my overall point is that there's you guys, and you know how it is. You go to your conferences and your meetings, and sort of the interaction with the public is 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 not as sort of as much as like, okay, you have a private health clinic. I mean, these are the people literally talking to members of the public. And, you know, like uh, it sounds like you're trying to do that, but I just think of some rural health clinic in Kansas, it would be great along with like, you know, how to avoid cancer that there's one next to that. It's just like the climate impacts on public health. And so, I mean, is that sort of your end game? That's what you're trying to go for. Absolutely. We want to get the information to those that need it. We also understand that the effects of climate change are extremely local, regional even. So trying to create different materials that can speak to the different health impacts that people are facing, we, we, we want to get that information to the groups that need it. We do a lot of work to translate research as well because climate research is really scientific and climate and health research also extremely scientific. Uh, and we want to Make that something that means something to the general public in hopes, you know, of driving something towards public outcry on this. And the U.S. Global Change Research Program in 2016 released their U.S. Climate and Health Assessment, which is full of wonderful information on all the many ways that climate change impacts our health. And APHA teamed up with Climate Nexus to create a series of infographics that we could share primarily via social media, but they're also on our website for anyone that wants to view them there. We've printed them out in small quantities and also shared them at meetings that we've attended. But what we did was we took the document that was very scientific, very technical, and we boiled it down um, to something that would be digestible to the general public. We, we do the same thing with our fact sheets that we share with the infographic. You know, we were able to make a more graphic representation of the, the ways climate change can impact health. But we make lots of 
different media type tools to reach our audiences um, with the information that they need. So yes, we would love to see a clinic in Kansas and other locations that have this information readily available for the folks that need it. First of all, Climate Nexus, they've been promoting podcasts lately, climate podcasts, they've been promoting this one. So I appreciate what they do. And it's great that you're partnering with them on that. And just, I wonder, that seems like such a big ask. I think of, you know, so many clinics are private, you know, it's, it's a doctor, it's one doctor who might have, you know, a practice there and it's going to be all on them and their sort of opinion on the issue. And so kind of getting some of these other topics that might be a bit controversial, that's a challenge. And you hope that it's just so integrated, like when you get your medical degree, that I'm sure there's more courses popping up talking about climate change and the impacts on public health. But, you know, the doctors, once they leave these medical schools, you know, they, they bring that ethic with them to, to these clinics. So <laughs> wishful thinking, right? We really hope. We know that, like I said, the medical field, first line responders, the nurses are ranked in many surveys to show that they are the most trusted health professionals. So engaging nurses, engaging physicians, communicate to their patients. And people really value the opinions um, or, or not opinions, uh, what their doctor says. People really value what their doctor says, their doctor and their pastor. And of course, the faith community is another key community that, that we want to engage in helping spread the message about climate change and help to prevent the health impacts. But people listen to their physicians. And so it, when there are medical schools that have environmental or climate courses, I applaud them personally. And, and, and we certainly need more of that. You just corrected me, and I appreciate it. Uh, I was talking medical schools and doctors, but you'd mentioned nurses. And I think most of us spend the vast majority of our time at clinics and hospitals with the nurse. And True. so the fact that they were there being those ambassadors, you know, and nursing schools and such. So, no, I good point. I just jumped right into the doctor schools. All right. Your partners. I want to talk a bit about some of your partners. And I'd mention AARP, and they obviously are very interested in, in the health of their members. It's a large organization and, you know, senior citizens, but I mean, I think they've expanded. I, I think you could be 50 and join AARP. Is that a group that you work with on climate change issues in public health? I don't believe that we have worked directly with AARP on climate change and health. We welcome all partners at APHA, and that would be a wonderful partner um, to team up with because it would it would allow us to address a population that is, one, vulnerable to the health impacts, um, more vulnerable, more sensitive to the health impacts, also a very able-bodied voting group of the public, and, and they, they would certainly be a wonderful, uh, a wonderful resource and group with which to connect. All right, let's get on it then. <laughs> uh, so the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, it's a government agency. They have been a, a longtime partner for your association. People want to know what's it, what's happening there on climate change issues. Can you speak to that? I know you guys had a big conference last March or April, and it actually was a bit controversial for I, I, no apparent reason, but it was. So, so what's what's going on there? So CDC has a robust climate and health program under the leadership of Dr. George Luber. And uh, we, APHA has been a partner with CDC for a number of years on climate change and health um, and also advocated for support of CDC's public health programs, including climate change and health. 
And we work very closely with them. So I know you've seen some of the resources that we have. We work with them to create a series of five fact sheets on climate change and health. These fact sheets are around um, adaptation and largely what local health departments can do to adapt to the health impacts of climate change. We've also written recently two reports with them on climate and health adaptation, which has featured the work of their CDC BRACE grantees. And BRACE is building resilience against climate effects. So they have grantees all across the U.S., in states and cities across the U.S. that are working on climate and health adaptation. So we've written two reports that have featured narratives and success stories on what BRACE grantees are doing. And, and these serve as great stories and best cases of best practices that others that are looking to implement climate and health plans can learn from. We've also, we have a, a series of success stories that we work on at APHA, um, been doing that over the years. And we did one on New York State featuring their climate and health program, took a really deep dive into some of the activities that they have enacted on climate change and health adaptation. And then uh, prior to my time at APHA, APHA and CDC teamed up to write a guidebook for public health department and public health agencies called Climate Change Mastering the Public Health Role. So this was in 2011, but the information that is in this report is still very useful, very accurate. And I've, I've been told by a few folks that their colleges actually use this in their climate change coursework. So uh, that's a lot of what we've done with CDC over the years. We've teamed up with them on many projects. Um, and I, I look forward to us continuing to team up with CDC on climate change and health. <laughs> that was such a nice, politically correct answer. But uh, have they stepped back at all in the last year and a half? Have they stepped back from the issue of climate change? It sounds like they haven't. You just said that they've partnered with you. But are they still involved? I mean, are they changing things in, in regards to the reports and such? Hmm. I really can't speak to that personally. I my my inclination is that no, they haven't stepped back on um, things that I don't work there. So I <laughs> I may have to reference you to someone that does work there if they're able to speak on it. Um, but they're not a political agency, and that is the beauty of working with CDC. And they don't act like a public, um, you know, they don't act like a political agency. And this is a really good sign so that we can continue to move climate change and health forward. And we hope that there's a continued separation between science and opinion and, and, it, and it doesn't hinder the work. And it hasn't thus far. We certainly want to see CDC continue to receive funding in this area. This year for the 2018 fiscal year, they were level funded, although um, the president's budget actually eliminated the CDC climate and health program. And the House also proposed eliminating it. Um, the CD, the Senate version kept it level funded, and that's what we ended up with. So um, that felt like a victory because there, there was a chance that it could be eliminated. But level funding isn't a complete victory. We certainly would like to see that this and other programs that were level funded in the next year, we would really like to see that they receive an increase in funding so that this work can continue. CDC has these race grantees across the country that are doing great things um, in terms of climate change and health adaptation in their state, but they certainly need funding to continue this great work. So 
uh, as I said before, we we um, completed this report on the Brace Grantees climate change adaptation uh, on the Brace Grantees regarding climate change and health adaptation. And for the 2015, I'm sorry, for the 2018 version, we asked each of the grantees to list some of the challenges that they face in implementing their programs, because you can always learn from somebody else's challenges. So we thought that would be really helpful for those trying to look for best practices. Many of them cited that resources are an issue. So there's certainly a need for continued resources, that being most important, but also increased resources so that the work can thrive. Okay, so I <laughs> I did get in there that maybe the the policies are sort of kind of status quo at CDC, but when the the White House zeroes out your program message sent, so hopefully that they'll demonstrate their value in the coming year that that's not going to be an issue next year that you're not having to kind of fight those battles to make sure that they get their funding. Um, yeah, that's absolutely the hope. All right, so a, a few more questions. We've covered a lot of ground and. A recurring theme with my listeners, especially younger listeners, is that they listen to the podcast and they, they think, oh, well, maybe I want to get into the uh, adaptation universe. And what you're doing now is part of that. And so what do you think the opportunities are in your field, not just your job, but in general with public health? If someone wants to get into adaptation public health, what would you recommend to them? You know, what kind of schooling, what kind of, you know, areas could they find jobs? Ah. Well, that's great. So there are jobs in many states that are doing climate change and health adaptation at a state level. There are some that are also doing it at the local level. As I said, there there's an issue with resources, um, but many states are are at least doing this at a state level. Um, but there are also associations and nonprofits like APHA. What I would suggest is that students that are interested certainly immerse yourself in the topic. If you can take courses on it, take courses on it. If you're, if you're in a school of public health or any, or in a school of environmental science, if you're able to actually take a course on climate change, then certainly immerse yourself there. If not, if you're able to do an independent study and take a deep dive in that direction, go for it. Absolutely. Much of my learning on climate change and health has been on the job. So what others can do is they can intern. Uh, APHA certainly has interns, but many of the other public health organizations, um, nonprofits also have interns. So certainly be an intern Soak up everything, learn as much as you can. Uh, but there's much that can be done. You know, when, when I was in grad school, uh, the internet was not quite as robust as, as it is now. The world is at your fingertips nowadays. So certainly you can learn many things, um, on your own. You can go out and see what your state offers, what climate, what types of climate adaptation programs are there who's doing the work, and you can find all that out without even picking up a telephone. Um, you, you can look on the computer and get much information that way. And then there's podcasts. There, I, I'm pretty sure there was not a climate adaptation podcast when I had started grad school. This would have been amazing, um, a wonderful opportunity. So the information is at your fingertips online, on podcasts. And then if you can find an organization to link with. Another thing that I personally did when I knew a topic that I was very interested in, but I couldn't quite get break into it in my coursework, I volunteered. 
I was very interested in environmental justice. That is my passion project. And, and it really underscores all of the climate work that I do. And so I, I was very interested in that. But we didn't have a course in environmental justice when I was in grad school. There weren't as many opportunities in that space. And so what I did was I, I found a local environmental justice organization and I volunteered with them. And that allowed me to have that experience. So volunteering also definitely join professional societies that will help you connect with others that are like minded. And certainly somebody there knows somebody that's doing something a little closer to what you want to do. So if you can start by shadowing or interning, or if you can actually find um, professional experience in that field, the sky's the limit, but certainly start with the internet and get a good lay of the land there. Awesome advice. Lots of different avenues to pursue there. Okay. So just a couple last things here. First is, is there any last thing that you want to share? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, but is there any last sort of message that you don't think you necessarily got out or just sort of want to repeat in regards to what your organization's doing or this whole broader issue is final thoughts? Um, I just want to reiterate that the impacts of climate change are being felt today. It's affecting our health today. It's not far off in the future. It's happening now. Polar bears have historically been the face of climate change, and polar bears are extremely important. But polar bears are probably looking back at us right now and saying, hey, guys, you humans, you are affected too. We need to make ourselves, our children, our parents, our seniors, our elders in the community, we need to make all of our faces the face of climate change and operate to adapt to protect our health. And it can be done. While this is the greatest challenge we face, this is also the greatest public health opportunity. Awesome. Okay, last question I ask of everyone, and you know what's coming. If you had to recommend one person to come on the podcast, and you can help make that connection, that's not necessary, but uh, who would it be? Oh, wow. My mind just <laughs> raced through so many exciting folks. There are some wonderful people that I have had the privilege of learning from on climate change and health since my time at APHA. I highly recommend Dr. Linda Rudolph. I highly recommend Dr. Kim Knowlton. And I also highly recommend Dr. Jonathan Patz. I, uh, the, these are some of my climate change and health heroes, and uh, they would certainly add value and uh, great conversation uh, to the discussion. Well, awesome. Uh, I'll do if you could share any resources on them, but uh, I'll try to do my own digging. But yeah, I'm always looking for different voices, and of course, I'll be coming back to public health. It'll just it'll keep me busy with content. I'm sure for years and decades to come. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you for what you do. Critically important, and I, I don't think it gets enough attention. And what I can do to help, I, I want to do. But good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. All right, adapters, that's another episode of America Adapts. Until next time. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. Natasha was great, and it was an honor to have her on. I think many of us in the adaptation sector get frustrated. We're not getting enough traction on influencing the public on what's coming. I think as the public health community turns its gaze toward climate change, we are going to gain some powerful allies in what we do. Reach out to these people and find partnerships you otherwise would not have thought about. I have a feeling Dr. Desjardins will be in high demand in the coming years. And the American Public Health Association 
you are totally ahead of the game by podcasting on other subjects. You should add a podcast totally dedicated to climate change. Let me know if you need some help on that. All right, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts on Facebook and ask to join, and I will approve it right away. It's a chance to hear some insider conversations, and listeners share really interesting stories on that Facebook page, and we get into some side conversations that are actually very interesting. All right, I love hearing from you. Every time I release an episode, I hear from random people from all over the world. I love it. Reach out. Let me know what you think of the episodes. Let me know if you have ideas for guests. Or just reach out to say hi. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you. And sometimes it actually leads to some interesting collaborations. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially the link to that donate page. It's the two-year anniversary. You know you want to go in and donate. All right, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.